out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, the C86 show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the uh, turn of the bang called Spears Energy. I know. Within the interview, you'll find out they've changed their names more time than anybody else. In fact, they're in the Guinness Book of Records for it. So this is my uh, interview conversation with Spiz to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. And um, after a lot of uh, casual chat to begin with, as you do, um, yes, I got down to that interesting subject that is uh, names. And I was curious to know what his real name was. I didn't completely know, so I did. I asked him, as you do. And uh, this was his uh, reply. Spiz, explain more. Enjoy. Spiz. Spiz. That's fine. Uh, no, I, uh, I have a real name, but it's, uh, I, I don't use it because um, it causes complications with the with Facebook and other uh, social platforms. Yes. And also, uh, you know, I was na- named after two uncles that shot down in World War Two, and it's kind of... The, why I don't call, go around championing my name. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Yeah. It's not hard to find it. It's on Wikipedia, so. <laughs> Everything's on Wikipedia, isn't it, really? Ish. I don't know. I don't know. Well, yes. my, my guitarist keeps uh, correcting any uh, uh, errors. I used to bother, but I think it doesn't matter. No, I mean, in this day and age, you know, we're all very casual about it. Yes, as long as you got most of the gist, I think it's the great thing. But look, I'm I'm sort of it's always curious because I'm I'm sort of born in the mid '60s, so I'm in my mid '50s now, and um, yeah, <clears throat> so my musical kind of kind of awakening was a bit like you know the late '60s, listening to the radio with my mum, who was probably listening yeah. to radio too, and yeah, yeah, Jimmy Young in the afternoon with her his great "What's the Recipe Today, Jimmy." And her scribbling Sunday, down various Sundays, recipes. Sundays, it'd be two-way family favourites uh, with the, the, force, the forces sending messages via BBC and getting records played on the Sunday afternoon. Yes. Well, I remember fast-forwarding to that programme because my brother went in the army in the probably the uh, 80s, uh, 70s, I guess. So my dad used to love listening to it and getting kind of a bit emotional, I suppose. Yeah, the old folks. Yeah, the old the, folks. The old folks loved all that. But yeah, but then it was kind of, you know, as you could imagine, the cliche of being at my age was kind of watching Top of the Pops and the glam pit, glam rock period of the early 70s and Sweet and obviously Gary Glitter and um, and a bit of Slade. I'm not, wasn't huge on Slade. Love Gary Glitter, though. Um, and yeah, my, big, my eldest brother was a big Gary Glitter fan. And also, I never really got Slade or, or any of the um, what I call the tin, the tinsel glam rockers like uh mud and and sweet no i was more in the art house of roxy music brian ferry uh david bowie oh. you know alice cooper theatrical yes well i remember alice cooper and, and hearing schools out and being absolutely you know as a 10 11 year old being absolutely like wow what an anthem yeah, well a lot of my influence came from the fact my i, my, I didn't have spending power when that, that album came out but my brother bought it you know so i was listening to stuff from from the, all those eras, from my brother's record collection, really, until I started getting pocket money. Yeah, and um, and I can't. But luckily, my first single was David Bowie's "Space Oddity," which I'm always kind of grateful for because, frankly, yes, I could have done. And it had the B side changes and Velvet Goldmine, and it was like, wow, B sides are great. Obviously, you were ahead of me then, because that surely that was a reissue. It must have been a reissue. I think that was more like... I bought the 1969 one and it didn't have... No, I bought the one, it got reissued and I I saw it on top of the pops. Yeah, Velvet Goldmine would have been a bonus track to get people, Bowie fans, buying what they've already bought before. Yeah, Yeah, and it was a brilliant song and and obviously Changes. (laughs) Changes was great and luckily my first album was Changes 1 Bowie. So he was my first love and thank God for that because he didn't ever let me down. Unlike some other people, but we'll talk about them later. But what was your musical um, kind of awakening, so to speak? Well, to, as I said, I got two older brothers, and they were buying. Uh, my brother was into Tamla Motown, Soul, uh, and, the, and my middle brother. I'm, I'm the youngest brother, and my middle brother he liked uh, Hendrix and stuff, the more guitar stuff. But both liked, you know, uh, Bad Company, Family, 
and uh, so I, I, when they were out, I would play their records when they weren't around because they used to tell me off for playing their records. You know that sort of brothers, brothers yes. versus brothers thing. And then, well, that's um, all, that sounds very familiar because my brother is seven years older and he loved prog rock and I would sneak in and listen to prog rock records when he was out and being very obsessed about all that kind of world of yes Genesis Wishbone Ash Barkley James Harvest even the solo work of Rick Wakeman I love yeah well my brother had the Wishbone Ash Argus and I quite like yes. that I went actually went to see them this is all before punk rock because I hadn't refined my own personal tastes yet yes but this is true my most excitable tv memory was watching Andy Fairweather Low in Amen Corner doing um uh, Bend Me, Shape Me, and um, if Paradise is Half as Nice on black and white telly. You know? Nice. That is a good one. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the older brother thing. Um, but yes, he didn't believe in seven-inch singles, and he definitely didn't believe in punk rock. Oh, it's one of those, yeah. He was one of them. It was Roger Dean post. It was a Roger Dean sleeve or nothing in his day. Wasn't it uh, Zeppelin boasted they never leave at least seven inches? And yeah, like... they never did a single. He didn't, bizarrely, he didn't really do heavy metal. He did Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, but he, he kept it at that level and it was all sophisticated, sort of gin strokey kind of music. Doodling, it, yeah. So Led Zeppelin didn't really appear, actually, and I never really got Led Zeppelin myself. So, Not um, die, really, no. I just don't know what you're supposed to do when you listen to it, really. But look, so then, so you were obviously a little bit older because you, you got the art stuff of um as you mentioned roxy music did you also get into t-rex i didn't i didn't really like mark bolan either because of the um the curly hair really he looked looked too looked like uh you know david cassidy mark bolan the osmonds they all fed into that uh cute good looking whereas bowie and roxy music was sort of a weirder yes they were very weird there was a bit there was a bit more um, suburban look about mark bolan and and, because i had a next door neighbor who had every single double page jackie spread on all uh, uh, walls in her bedroom so there'd be like all those people i just mentioned and they were sort of like not quite proper rock really so so yeah well i mean you know obviously since i've grown up and read more about Bowie's relationship with Mark Bolan and the scene in London at the time so I know more about that now and realise that too, yeah, Mark was actually quite a good catalyst within the scene Yes, well he had that early period which John Peel when he was doing the um, the Perfume Garden in the because yeah, yeah. he uh, helped he helped T-Rex get record releases. Yeah, and he was he was doing that very really quirky songs and and even more quirky poetry, which you know is is both brilliant and slightly or, or hippie shit, as we also call we, it. It was hippie shit in, in huge ways, but it's a bit like you thought. I don't understand it. It's very weird, so it must be good, as as you know, in an art critique would you know. It's a bit like listening to the Incredible String Band or Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask Replica. You think this is so hard to hear and so difficult I'm not going to play it unless someone comes around and I'll put it on and look sophisticated because that's the thing you do um, like crass records really as well <laughs> fast forward you never listen to them on your own though would you let's be honest but then no. someone comes around and goes, oh I love all the crafts oh mate. oh incredible string band it's incredible I listen to this all day and then then you put on you know Madonna's greatest hits or something I don't know it's a weird world, isn't it? Trying to look cool when you're young, it's 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 a hard time. It's hard. You give up when you get to about 20. Well, I didn't have people come around my place. I usually went around theirs. Yes. Well, there <laughs> you go. But then when did you start to think, this is it, I'm going to, I'm kind of getting curious, Dr. Feelgood, the Ramones, did did you have a moment where things started to happen? Well, no, basically um, uh, I wanted to be an actor when I was, until uh, uh, I saw David Bowie on Top of the Pops and I thought, oh, no, that looks more fun. And so it was that top of the pops appearance that a lot of people in the punk scene say that's what turned them, changed, flipped the coin for them. You know, the star man pointing his finger down at the camera. Classic. uh, Which is exactly, I was just right, right age, 14 for it anyway. And so my first ever rock concert was to see David Bowie at Birmingham Town Hall, 1973, uh, June 22nd, third road, £1.50. So uh, I was excited that this was the best show I've ever seen in the world because it was the only show I'd ever seen in the world. I'd never been to a, a proper rock concert apart from the local band playing in a youth club and that's nothing yes. much to write home about. And then I started learning guitar uh, as before I got just before I got to art college and I thought, well, I don't sound anything like the, the records I love. You know, I sound a bit rubbish. And it wasn't until I saw The Clash 
uh, like right in front of your face in the Birmingham Barbarella's uh, aged uh, 77, 78, 18. And uh, I thought, I could do this. I want this. And then a month later, I blagged my way onto the stage. So from seeing The Clash and being inspired, I want to do this, in a month later, I was doing it. Not very well, but I was on stage. I had the balls to do it. Yes. And did you find your voice? I mean, did you did you think, yes, I can sing? I mean, because that's quite something. Because I, when I was at school... Well, I didn't have a tape recorder, so I didn't know what I sounded like. Yeah, but did you have a teacher? Because I remember we at primary school, we had a, head, a headmaster who was a horrendous person. <laughs> He'd made us sing. But if you couldn't sing, he would say, you can't sing, stand at the back and mime kind of thing. No one wants to hear you sing, boy, go out. And um, so so that kind of crushes a, a, a sort of eight-year-old spirit. But you never had someone say, for God's sake, do you never think about being a singer. So you, you had the confidence to get up there and hit the note. Well, I just, yeah, I, I, I just... Well, I thought anyone could do it. It's not hard. It's not. It's not like uh, you know, not rocket science. It's not. Phys- it's not the physics lessons, are they? You know, which you. Yeah, um, basically, you know, um, I didn't think I was a good singer until much, much later. Uh, uh, but um, I just evolved. My singing just the more you did it, the better you got at it. You know. Yes, absolutely, and then. Yeah, so how did you start to form a band? Because this is kind of obviously, you're in the golden period. Because I'd, I'd done an interview with Richard Strange from The Doctors of Madness. And he he's, said, been a, he's been a guest on my Spiz FM radio show. Nice. And he does, he's, he does quality chat, doesn't he, Richard? Yeah. Um, he's, he's got some good stories. But he, was, he told me, and he's probably told you too, he was two years too early for punk. And it was like, ah, oh, two years, hey. That's a tough world, Richard. And a lot of people have often said, you know, it's about the timing. You know, you probably know about... Always, yeah. It's about the time. So he said, yeah, all these bands came to see us, went, oh, that's brilliant, we'll go and form a band. And so when it was like payday for him, it was like, no, sorry, mate, you're a bit of an old dude at 25. So yeah. you've, you've kind of missed the boat. And um, yeah. Well, so... the Stranglers could have fell into that same thing, but they, they, they did turn out a few decent hits, so they got away. Yes, though they were like the the people you invited to a party, but then regretted it, didn't you? Because you thought mm, they they might they look a bit mean. <laughs> you wouldn't mess with them. You wouldn't go up, you know, like with Johnny Rotten, somebody. You know, you could go up and you'd do that sort of Eric Morecambe thing and sort of slap him on the cheek, but you wouldn't do that with a member of the Stranglers, would you? No. Uh, I so I I started um, uh, doing some shows because uh, people were enjoying what I was doing and said, you know. There's this other gig, go down there. And I didn't have any material. I just made it up on the spot. I thought this was, you know, da-da. This is like, because I came from art school I, and, and the art approach was, was you know, you, you did, the, the day you write a song down is the day you sold out. So I, I just used to make it up. Of course, eventually I was struggling. I was struggling to, to, to just improvise a whole 20 minutes. And so, and, and my guitaring wasn't, you know, a, a virtuosity guitaring. And uh, I happened to be walking down the street with a London show looming up and I uh, didn't have any transport. And Pete Petrel, as he became known, it was my school buddy I was in a school band with when we did the end of term disco together. Uh, and he, uh, he he played bass in that band. And I said, Pete, you can play guitar, can't you? Yeah. And you've got a car. Great. Let's, I've got a show in, in London in a week's time. Let's, uh, so let's go and write some songs. So we went back to uh, the pub, had a couple of beers, went back to his bed sit and wrote four songs there and then short snappy songs and then we thought we know well i like he said i like uh, hey joe by hendrix i said well patch smith's done that that's all that's allowed so we'll we'll play that one and then we'll learn hang on to yourself because that's a punk formula you know that that song by david bowie hang on to yourself yes. is the punk formula so well let's do that that sounds uh, that's right and they said, oh, that was that's 20 minutes let's go and do a show so we went drove down to london and we weren't expected to get paid because uh, the guy who booked us we, they said, oh, yeah, just put them on the bill. They'll show up. Well, yeah, we we come from Birmingham all the way down to London for this. Uh, you've got to give some money for the petrol and something to eat. So we actually got paid 25 quid. Well, that's not bad, actually. 20... In 1977, that's a miracle. That was a miracle, actually, because there's, yeah, a few people have never... Only because I think he liked us, so... Uh... Nice. And that was quite, you know, because the only other band who were almost as fast as you to get on stage was We've Got a First Box and We're Going to Use It, who I think just yeah. went, oh, actually, we're suddenly no, on stage. They probably made up the name on the day of the gig. <laughs> yes, it was very, it was quite touch and go. It's like, OK, we've never done this before, have lots of feedback. And um, 
let's get on it in and out before um, we get bottled. So you... Anyone realises we're not knowing what we're doing? <laughs> yes, I know. That it was just a bit of a joke. But then, yes, so things move quick, though, don't they, in, in the sort of punk period and even the indie period a bit later. You know, there was this kind of like quick steps to, um, yes, heaven. Well, it was a rough ride for us because we went from playing on, you know, obviously I managed to get some other gigs locally uh, in pub discos, and we would basically do 20 minutes on standing on beer crates. 12, less than 12 months, in, within 10 months, I've gone from doing that in a pub to supporting Susie Banshees at Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah. And so how did you, I mean, this isn't like the Norwich Arts Centre or the back of a pub. These are kind of big spaces and a big stage. I mean, how did you... I how... went completely berserk. I thought this was, I was j- jumping around like a kangaroo. <laughs> if in doubt, jump. Yes, but then, you know, I mean, because it's quite incredible because a lot of bands, you know, especially in this area, you know, never quite get out of Norwich, really, let's face it. There's a few, but there's never been that many. But to to be able to sort of suddenly play in front of, rather than just your, you know, friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you, most bands kind of struggle at at first base. They never get beyond it. Because I I realised the one thing, you know, obviously there's, there's kind of the gatekeepers back in those days and you had the networks. And you had people like John Peel that would give you a spin sometimes, and it it kind of would catapult people to a, the next level, which was well. Ex- yes, that's exactly what happened. Were, on the on on the back of supporting Susie again later in the summer of July. In fact, July twenty third coming up. Is it July twenty third yet? No, it's not. We're still in June, aren't we? Um, yeah. So you know, can't tell whether it nowadays. No, so, yeah, I know. We, I had to think that. We supported Susie at the Roundhouse, and we weren't on the bill uh, on the posters, but we were booked in. And people thought, because they didn't know we were going to be on next, we were on before Susie, that they that we had a full full house. Everyone had come in expecting Susie to come on when the music intro, our, our musical intro, which was the theme from Lawrence of Arabia, oil, so you spit oil, but no one got the joke. And uh, so uh, we went on and. Um, we had uh, over a thousand people, and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Really, we, 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 and the Sandman, or Susie Sandman, they liked us, and he, 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 he just whacked up the volume to fill the PA. Yeah. We were like a huge sledgehammer coming out of people, and there was this hostile group of uh, skinheads at the front that were uh, causing trouble everywhere. And there was, they were, they were, they got, they managed to gob off the first band, and uh, uh, we thought. No, you're not going to. We're not going to be intimidated. I, I gave him a load of verbal abuse, and um, and I got it all on tape. And then um, we got great rave reviews in the music papers. John Peel was there, so we got the radio session. And after the radio session, Rough Trade liked us, and after Rough Trade then put the record out. And then we that was it. We were off. Wow. <laughs> but the, the rocket ride. It was a rocket ride from 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 uh, the first gig together, me and Pete Petrol in in, in October November. 1977 to 1978 and a record and a tour <laughs> yes um yeah I, I was just kind of because I always remember in that period we had um it was Esther Ransom wasn't it she did a show called the big time I think with Sheena Easton and and that that was kind of the early years of the x factor and not many people shot that quickly to fame you know in that's such right a... yeah I remember that Sheena Easton yeah she was a classic actually and the important thing back then which which is well, several things. I mean, what was it like touring with Susie? Because I mean, they were quite an incredible lineup and and quite the the article. Well, again, it was appealing to because they were they were like uh, the one, two, three, four punk bands. They they were also trying something, uh, move, move, moving things along a bit. Um, they weren't, you know, with their chord sequences and and this, this the jangling of the John Mackay's guitaring and the ice ice. Queen visuals of Susie. Yes, um, it was all different to punk rock normal. So, and then they had us as a support band. So uh, we 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 were like Marmite. You know, we could either turn the crowd around and have us in the palm of our hands, and or um or you know it it would be a fight. Fights would break out. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and did you find the kind of the songwriting process came together through youth and enthusiasm and drinking? Well, uh, yeah, drinking was important, uh, you know, because ideas start, you start mixing things up. And, um, uh, you know, I wrote Where's Captain Kirk after a couple of shandies. 
yes. on the bus in my head with because I didn't have a pen and paper. And I had to just sing it to myself in my head on the bus until I got off and ran down the road and wrote it. But every song literally comes to me mostly differently. Very few, much le- now I've written a lot more songs, I suppose, that they come to be a bit more traditionally formed. But so back then, I, 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 you just didn't know where a song would come from. Yeah, I know. I, I always remember there was a nice story with um, Keith Richards, who sort of suddenly woke up in the night with a with a rift in his head. So he just got the tape recorder and played it, and completely fell <laughs> fell asleep. And and then next morning listened and went, oh, okay, I didn't, you know, completely forgot that I did this. And it, I can't remember what the song was, but it was quite a famous one. It's satisfaction. Don't right. There you go. Because the other thing that that. Um, about that period, and especially the the next decade as well, at least, is the the importance of the gatekeepers. You know, which you know were all over the well. There weren't that many, but they were really important. John Peel being one, and yeah. even though we all felt quite like we were the only people listening to it, and he probably thought he only had ten listeners, yeah. as he used to sort of have his self deprecating sense of humour. You realise yeah. actually they, that we were all individuals with our trusty TDK D ninety cassettes listening and then playing it the next few days. And thinking, oh, that's interesting. But then, yeah, there was some, there was one of those kids in most places, weren't there? Really, like myself and other people. And then you had the enemy melody maker sounds, and then this network of kind of venues, little towns and stuff, all over. Um, yeah, in towns and cities, you know, like we Norwich had the Arts Centre, and and then you had the George Roby, and then you had the Princess Charlotte in Leicester, and and yeah, and you know, every town city had a, a sort of an indie night on a Monday or Tuesday. Or Thursday, who knows? But um, then that kind of gave people the opportunity to play live, which I think is incredibly important in front of strangers. Well, that's one of my, um, you know, one of the core core elements to myself is that um, I, I sometimes twist the arm of the band, saying, uh, "Well, we haven't rehearsed it enough yet. It doesn't matter. This is, this song is almost ready, and, and and it's only by playing it and getting a getting a feel for it on stage when you haven't got time to stop and." Go back to the verse, second verse. Let's go back to the chorus. No, you do it like, and then that's how that that bashes the, it's like metal bashing. It that bashes it into shape. Yes, and I can remember. So I'm never worried about. I'm never, well, obviously, starting off by improvising, I never worried about whether material was ready or not. You know. Well, it's interesting because I know that you know, like with the Beatles, you know, their manager Brian Epstein, you know, he he obviously saw potential, but thought. Mm, Lots of lots a lot of work where that is needed. So he sent them over to Hamburg, and then you know yeah, that's right. They played they played them till played till their hands bled. Really, yes, like they? several several day several times a day. You know, for oh, a long that? period of time. So you're going to sharpen up, and also you're going to see. And I remember one of those docu. You know, I love my rock documentaries, and even on bands I'm not that keen on, like Twisted Sister, who played live endlessly, and Black Sabbath, who again played live. And so when they went to record their first album, it was a bit like, well, actually, this is just going to take an afternoon because we've been playing it for years and we know you know from the crowd you know which bits work and which bits don't and they've you know and we we know what we're doing we're not sort of we're not going to be fragile we you know we know how that's going to happen so the, the live arena is kind of quite essential really and 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 I remember as a fan you know when you knew there was an indie night on you know, in this case, the Norwich Arts Centre, you just go because it was like £2 for three bands and you thought, oh, yes, they've been on the John Peel show. That's good enough for me. Let's just go and take well, I, the... totted, I totted up the, uh, my, my shows once uh, from when I started right till uh, like uh, three years. The first three years, I did about 600 shows. Yes, that's, that's going to... You, you know... nearly put me off. <laughs> <laughs> God, you must have felt shattered, actually. You thought... Yeah, not, in, not, not in a row. <laughs> no, no, but quite. But over, you know, there was talk, there were breaks in the tour and recording, but yeah, we were if we weren't uh, re- gigging, we were then we you know do, trying to get something else going. Yeah, and you must have been so pleased to have got Rough Trade, who was sort of at that stage, I suppose, in their infancy. Well, yeah, we, we, it was a cool label. Everyone knew that. That's, that's what. How can we? I don't. It was a surprise to many that we were on Rough Trade. <laughs> Yeah, and what was um? And obviously, our, our socks matched. Nice. That's, yeah, a lot that... of people like, back then. A lot of people would th- thought it was cool to have a different coloured socks on. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. The word wacky is a bit yeah. But then John Peel, how did that session go? Because often, you know, that's quite the blessing. It's like the Pope, isn't it? Giving you the, you know, you you've entered the next the next place. Well, obviously, we're thrilled to bits, and we you know just drove down to London and. Uh, got to Maidvale and you say they say you set up there and you go over there and and then you, you 
it, we, well, we, had, we hadn't we hadn't recorded. We hadn't been in a we hadn't been in a studio. Me and Pete. This was our first studio. That was the other weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so we, we just men told us where to stand and, and, and said, "Off you go." <laughs> and you must have thought. Oh. And then we had a chance to overdub any extra ideas we had, which I had a couple of other things. And then um, nothing special, like bit percussion, because we weren't we were a duo without drums. Yes. So, so we did a bit of piano because that's the percussive instrument, and did it on one of the tracks, and 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 we made some other noises, and then uh, they, we mixed it, and they said, "Thank you very much. See you later." And off we went. <laughs> I guess at that time you didn't have the famous Dale Griffiths, did you? We had uh, we had a pretty good uh, producer. We had um, uh, oh, was it Mike Robinson or? Now, if you look on um, Keeping It Peel, there's the uh, all the information there on all the web, all, all the sessions there. Right. Okay. Yes. An archive, archive, a BBC archive site, and I, it's got. I got think it's Trevor. It. Trevor Dan. Trevor Dan. That was it. He's your man. And did you? I mean, were you pleased with? You know, because you had getting the material together. I mean, was was that a tr- was that a bit of an issue at that stage, being so new? Well, I mean, we 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 did what we thought were the best pieces we, we 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 were doing but one of them we didn't do live it was just an extent well it was, a, it was a medley it was one thing we did live and then we made uh, just made up stuff we were still i was still got far away from my improviser improvisation era if you like yeah i mean were you i mean because you mentioned dada a bit earlier and i remember in this area there was a few slightly famous um artists who who'd sort of um you loved performance art, you know. The sixties were full of those kind of happenings, didn't they? In various little places in London and probably in the west coast of America as well. Um, yeah. So, so this guy was Bruce Lacey, and he used to love doing these kind of performances in galleries and sometimes around hippie festivals in East Anglia as well. Um, did you? Were you kind of aware of that kind of scene that had happened in the sixties and then into the seventies? No, no, only through my art history uh, lessons that uh, yeah, was was part of your course that I discovered that the, the the timeline from the First World War and the Dada reaction, and then following on that came Cubism, Surrealism, and then you got into Salvador Dali, then you got into pop art, and it, it it seemed to me quite a lot of logical extensions going on. And then when you got to pop art, you you also found about about Andy Warhol and Lou Reed, and then you start connected to so it's, it's this whole circle. But you think this is this is what this is connected. So when I performed, I thought I would try and draw in on element. I wasn't making, I didn't have a checklist, but I must remember to put a bit of dada in that song. <laughs> I didn't have a checklist. No, I just it's just it was just in there in the mix, in your head. Yes, it was. It's in your DNA, wasn't it? Really. Yeah. It was like I mean, I, Bowie did the same. I think his during his sixties period. I mean, he did a, try a lot of different things, and yes. eventually the the stars kind of lined up for him. So he started to get it together in the early seventies. But he'd spent six years kind of going nowhere fast. But it was all slightly formulated, formulating sort of somewhere yeah. there until you know, Angie and his manager De Freeze sort of started to put put it together a bit more and um, yeah. hit the formula really. Knocking it into shape, yeah. You've got to knock it into shape. And then when you when you were recording Where's Captain Kirk, did you feel at the time, God, this is actually quite something. This is my ninety nine red balloons. No, I did what we what we knew is that when when we when I when I wrote the song on the bus, I went back to rehearsal the following we used to rehearse every week. Uh, Jim Solar on bass, Mark Colfield on piano. We didn't have a drummer or a guitarist. A regular guitarist and me, and we were still knocking around ideas for songs. You know, we had Soldier Soldier already because we'd done that on the John Peel session, and uh, we were so we uh, our second John Peel session, and then uh, we were we we were looking like we got a, a tour coming up. We're going to need more songs, and that's where Mark introduced this tune, and he had some words, and the only word in the song that I can remember was "Oh, but it's true," and that, that was the song that sparked the whole lyric on the bus. And so I said, well, Mark, Mark, that song you played, I don't understand the word you were saying apart from this bit. And I've written some new songs. See what you think. So we played the song and we just fell about laughing. And we thought, this is, this is, this is interesting. <laughs> this, is, this is not normal. And then so we, 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 we tidied it up. And when we first played it, still without a drummer, just, just, we had a guitarist for that show. It was, it was in Handsworth, Birmingham. And uh, we played it. And the place went completely mental. We played it eight times. And that's when we—that's when we knew. That's when we knew we got. This is a bit of magic. This is. This so yeah, is we went into the studio knowing it was a good song. That's all. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And then because because having done, you know, this show for a while, the, you know, there is a kind of a, the, the narrative of most bands. And you probably sort of realise this yourself that, you know, there's that sort of honeymoon period where things are going well. And then in you know, the case, of a lot of bands I've like, you know, there's the John Peel play and then the John Peel session, that first album, things are going really well. And then it kind of gets a bit tricky after that. And then, yeah, the second album gets a bit sort of even worse. How did there you... is a, yeah, a legend of the second album syndrome, they call it. Yes, and if it, that doesn't finish you, the second, the third one definitely <laughs> does. But also, a lot of bands I've spoke to, you know, with that time, I mean, going to America seems to finish most bands off as well because it seems to sort of, the place is too big and they're not, people just aren't prepared already or aware of what's going to happen in that next, that next moment. Plus, sometimes there's a lack of money that's been, you know, which means that people are still as poor at the, at the end. As well, unless you, unless you have a real bona fide chart hit, you, you do struggle with financial uh, longevity. Yes, I know, and and but in the, in those days there was kind of unemployment, which people did sort of manage to sort of work out, and then a bit later on, job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. So how were you kind of keeping the the line up? Because there was you and Pete Petrol. I mean, you you were the kind of the well, the... me and Pete Petrol, we fell out of Spears Oil. Well, that's why I formed Spears Energy. We introduced two. Jim Solar and Mark Caulfield by my girlfriend at the time. And then we struggled to find a guitarist. We went through seven guitarists in 1979. God, we went through five drummers. My God, it was, it was like Spinal Tap on steroids. Well, we, 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 if you're going to overdo it, I'm the man. <laughs> so uh, we went to yep. America with, uh, with Lou Edmonds on guitar. And uh, he liked America so much that he didn't want to come back home with us. So he, he he said he said just give us two months' wages. I'll see you in a couple of months. So we stayed in 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 LA when we all came back home. Um, so you're you're almost right about the American thing. But he did end up recording the second album with us, and then he left after the second album. Didn't do the tour, but we got Kevin Armstrong, who later played with Iggy Pop, David Bowie. Thomas Dolby, and I so think he, he, and I think he was at, li- and, and I think he was at Live Aid, Kevin. I think. Yeah, he was on stage for Bowie. Yeah, because 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 Bowie got Thomas Dolby in. Yes, to that's... shape the form the band for him, and then um, and Kevin got uh, got in on the act, and uh, well, hats off to him because he did a good job, and um, then the the one of the backing singers, Miriam, she ended up doing backing vocals on one of my songs. You know, excellent. So it's all a whirl. It is. It's. It's like the Big Brother house of, of alternative punky indie music. Yeah. So. So obviously you're sort of a, a mobile HR department of who's in the band this week. Um, yeah. So. So as we got, got into the eighties, were you starting to flag yourself, keeping it together? Well, uh, obviously um, distractions of uh, getting on guest lists for a lot. I ended. I was a party animal. I ended up being more interested about what we're doing tonight than rehearsing rehearsing a new song. Yes. The living in London, because I'd moved to London in 1980, and uh, obviously the Rocket Rider was already, we already lost the first stage. We were almost uh, on the way to the moon. Uh, <laughs> so, and, uh, and how were you coping? I mean, because obviously changing the name of a band a lot, which is quite an unusual thing to do. I mean, it is we, the un- most unusual thing. No one's done it. No one's uh, well, ever done people it. People change the name, but the band, but not as a, not as a, a, a policy. No, they abbreviate it. Like we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it, but they don't just kind of go, okay, we've got a new, a few new lines. How were you dealing with things like publishing and ownership of your music? Well, uh, we had management, so uh, they, he rather, we had a manager, and so he dealt with everything for us and all that sort of stuff. So we didn't know anything about it. For, uh, Till till the till the fan gets a load of stuff hitting it, um. But that we um. Well, you what were you saying there? Yes, I was just wondering how you know, sort of getting into the the kind of the next decade and and having sort of oh, the eighties, yeah. yeah. Well, that the, the thing was um, two things happened there is that um, uh, it, we our manager had a row with the uh, uh public publicity department of A and M Records. And so uh, it went upstairs, the, the argument, and um, he, he sided with his staff and dropped dropped the band. So we got dropped and um, therefore we went back to Rough Trade, which wasn't a bad thing. Uh, we managed to release a couple of singles. Again, the lineup, Pete Petrel came back in. Uh, we got uh, the guitarist from London and Metro, uh, Colin White, who used to be with... Um, uh, 
the drummer of uh, Culture Club, uh, John Moss. He was he was in the same band with him before oh, okay. before Culture Club, and he's a good guitarist. And then uh, we had uh, on on bass we had Jim Soler, and on drums we had the guy who. Who was in Fabulous Poodles? He did the session for Soldier Soldier, Virginia Plain, Where's Captain Kirk, and Amnesia. The songs that, uh, that is, if there ever was, what's the original Spiz Energy? That's the ones that were recorded the, the the drums, bass, guitar for Soldier Soldier and Where's Captain Kirk in the summer of '79. And then, uh, so we went back to Rough Trade. We released a couple of singles. We did a couple of big gigs, and then um, it just. I, I just had enough, and I, I sort of walked away. I just said, "That's it. I, I, I'm, I'm going back to art. I'm going back to being an artist." Yes. And did you? I mean, did you have a kind uh, of a, a moment, or was it just kind of an individual decision that you thought? Well, one of one of the moments it was, it was my guitar was in the studio in the basement of our management's offices, and it got stolen. And it was possibly not stolen. It was probably sold for drugs. <laughs> That was one of the nails in the coffin. Oh, that is that is cruel, isn't it? It did is, you, yeah. Did you find that you, the deals that you made were they generally, you know, not great, but they weren't too bad either? Oh yeah, no. But the thing is, that we, you know, we were young, we were young, and quite, you know, but you get you get handed a fifty-page document to look and read and take it to go and find your own lawyer to go and get it, and then and then the lawyer says, "Don't sign it," and then you still sign it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's probably not many, you know, different options really that are going to lead lead to fame. But that's, that's the name changes. That was organic as well. That wasn't uh, that wasn't really a policy. I, you know, I started off being called Spiz seventy seven because nineteen seventy seven was when I started, and I liked the look of it as a design a designs thing. The Z, the Z's followed by the seven seven. But then nineteen seventy eight, I thought, well, that's going to look rubbish. I don't want to be called 77 and 78. Spiz 78 doesn't look as good. I saw the programme about oil rigs. Spiz oil. It was symmetrical. It was great. And Pete, Pete Plectrum changed his name to Pete Petrol. Oh, yes. working. So, uh, and then, of course, when I formed it, when, when, when we transformed into energy, uh, then everybody had energy names. So Jim Solar, Solar Power, Mark Coalfield. Sounded a bit like Mike Oldfield. But yes. Mark, Mark Coalfield. That's a little, a little joke. We had, just, we had fun. We had fun with names. Yeah. yeah, the the drum was Brian B Benzine, and then um, you know, so we just we just played with names and had fun, and so names, and then I, enemy rang me up, Paul Morley, and said, "What's what's nineteen eighties name?" And I said, "Well, we had been considering it, but uh, uh, the Olympic Games was coming up, and the Thatcher and Reagan were putting on pressure for athletes not to go, and the athletes only have a short window where they can shine, and so we thought we would we'll call ourselves that Harry Speed eighty. And uh, and then we had the runner logo, and then so we we just kept changing the name. And A and M thought this was insane, but, <laughs> but it wouldn't have been insane if we had something like the internet, like we have now. But because you can actually just, I can actually rebrand a show. Like if I'm just doing an acoustic show, I do it as Spizology, which is me and one or two band members acoustically. Or if I'm like I've got an Italian friends and fans that we put together a, a band for me me just to fly out they learn the songs and then bang one rehearsal and we go and do some shows in milan and uh, that's called spiz italia so yes I've, it's kind I've of got it's, brand, I've got brand it, a name for a, a, a one event if necessary yeah it, it's kind of it does kind of work you could almost franchise it out can you you could sort of be the master yeah. mastermind this did it feel quite amazing when sort of a band like rem you know, covered one of your songs. Well, it was a, it was a kudos, yeah, because uh, regardless of what you think of REM, they have had a period where everyone thought they were quite cool. And um, uh, so I wrote I wrote to them. I said, I wrote a letter, I did. And I got a letter back from their fan club in Athens, Georgia. And they said, oh, yeah, thank you. Tell us all about, uh, and, and we'll send you a copy of the record. Tell us all about how you wrote the song so, for their fanzine. But they've obviously got a huge fan base. And basically every... Every Christmas, they used to release press up six thousand copies of uh, a unique number, six thousand, yes. uh, and um, they pressed up the copy and they gave them away to their fans in their fan club membership. So um, they, you can do that when you've had a few top ten hits in well, two weeks. Yes. When you're yeah, as big as I am, uh, then I, uh, I, I, they were playing Milton Keynes Bowl. So I thought, yeah, why don't you uh, invite me on stage? Bit cheeky, always have been. Don't ask, don't get. And uh, get us on to uh, get us on to do Where's Captain Kirk at the end of your show in uh, at Milton Keynes Bowl, 
and um, I, I didn't get a letter back. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's such a shame. It was like, I thought you were going to say, and then I just walked and out. And then of... I got the phone call, rehearsals on Thursday. Yes, so. 80,000 people. It was just a limo picked me up. It was just the best thing in my life. So then as the 80s, you, what did you, you know, because during the 80s, obviously this is my kind of decade where I got really obsessed with music and the indie world was kind of exploded. What were you sort of doing during that that interesting period? Well, I see, I didn't actually stop performing. I just moved away from the, the past team, as it were. And so in 1982, we were called uh, Is Energy 2, the sequel. And then um, in 1983, I rebranded myself as, uh, I thought I'm going to be ahead of my time, but I'm not going to be overdo it this time. I'm only going to be one year ahead of my time. I call myself Spizz Orwell in 1983, nice. yes. one year early, but we went straight over everyone's, everyone's head. And I thought, I'm not using a band anymore, I'll use backing tracks. So I had these backing tracks, of which Ian Page from Secret Affair was one of the guys who helped me with his recording portable studio to make me backing tracks. And then um, I got another, that was 1983, I did one show at the Camden Palace. So I did a show every year of all my life. I've done a show since I started performing, and that was 83. 84, then my girlfriend and a few other friends said, oh, we'll be back in singers. So I expanded the format and uh, did a longer set uh, in 1984. I played the the last future show, at the, which is what I called it, at the at the Marquee Wardour Street. And that was really good. Got video of it. Of it. It's, it's exciting. And then 1985, uh, we started thinking we, we, we go, this would probably work better in nightclubs. So we called ourselves Spizzy's Big Business. Because I thought, oh, this is, oh, I'm going to crack it now. And then uh, 1986, um, um, uh, another girlfriend uh, knew these musicians who had just lost their singer, Billy, from the Friends of Gavin, because he was getting married and they'd got nothing to do for a year. He was taking a year off. So they said, oh, yeah, we'll learn your songs. So they learned my songs and we went out to be sexual because everything was sexual. Then there was Madonna and Prince always grabbing them, Michael Jackson grabbing their crotches. I thought, yes. yeah, sexual, that's it, it's been sexual. So I went back to the live format there and I haven't really stopped. No. God, you've just, just been very... And obviously have a passion for football. Well, I've had to mute the uh, radio while we're doing this interview because I was listening to the Villa game. I don't know how it got on now. So I've got, Sorry about that. that. <laughs> well, it might not be good news. So uh, the longer I delay it, the probably might be the better. Yes, this is true. So were you, because Villa in that period, and this is when I was quite obsessed with football, were just the colossal team under Ron Saunders, weren't they? Winning. Well, yeah, Ron, Ron got us, uh, yeah, it's, it's all Ron's hard work that got us the European Cup, but he, he fell out and with the, with the with the club and walked away before he, he got to lift the trophy. But... Uh, uh, yeah, no, that's a, I was on tour. Actually, I didn't see it. I was, I didn't see the game. I was in, I was in somewhere like Scunthorpe, I think. Yes, was uh, it Peter With? Was he your? Peter With, in yes. Yeah, and there was a great midfield player called Mortimer, I think, as well. Mortimer was a very key player. Well, they were. Well, it's, it's, it, it was a team that, that won the European Cup with the least number of players. Oh, because did you pick? 14, 14 players played. Yes, because I think you picked Ipswich Town, and I think they had they had gone through the season and played something like 80 games with, like, 14 players, and same with Villa, and, and yeah. I can see why probably none of them can walk anymore, because they probably... I don't suppose, yeah, I don't suppose injuries, because uh, uh, athletes, they're more, they're going, much, they're running much faster, let's face it, today, even though the ball's a bit lighter, but they're wearing slippers, really, with studs, aren't they? That's yes, a, and the uh, the pictures are nice, but also I think oh, you know, pictures, yeah, the pictures that they had to play in 1980 were sometimes shocking. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that if a player had a bit of an injury, he would get a sort of injection. Just to say, bite his bite his bullet, yeah, bite his lip, and say, "Look, I'll give you a little injection. Oh, you can't feel your legs, but that's fine because you can run for 90 minutes. It will be fine. Don't worry. You will be. A, you won't be able to walk when you're in your 50s. I think. Yeah. But anyway, it was. And you had an awesome goalkeeper as well, didn't you? I can remember Burridge. Now, what happened was uh, Rimmer. Uh, Jimmy Rimmer from Man United. Yeah. And then um, uh, Spinksy got his second game, played for Villa in the European Cup final when he came on because Rimmer felt that his neck wasn't feeling right from an injury the game before. So um, the, what a courage he did for, to not hide that and come off come off the pitch. Yes, I know. God, yeah. you know. And yeah. then he made some great saves and we won, we won the, the Europe's biggest trophy. Brilliant. God, the Midlands were just rocking Europe, really, football-wise, weren't they? Yeah, little, little knocking forest. 
Yeah, incredible, incredible story. So look, as the 80s were kind of, I mean, obviously you were sort of very busy and, and sort of keeping creating, because I was just going to think during that period, it was kind of like these were the children that you had sort of inspired really, weren't you? You know, because each decade, you know, like when Britpop came along, a lot of those people who yeah, were on well, top I of the pops, a lot of the people on top of the pops had seen the indie bands from the 80s and the indie bands from the 80s were thinking, we didn't make any money. If only we were back, if we were only around now, we would be clearing up and appearing on top of the pot, selling a lot more records than we did back then. Yeah, an interesting stat came my way when um, when uh, I was reminded that No Room had advanced orders after the single after Where's Captain Kirk on Rough Trade had advanced orders of 50,000. And that is the number of records sold that got Arctic Monkeys to number one. Yes, I know. It is, yeah, I know. Those, those, the, you know, the indie charts that were still quite small compared to the mainstream charts back then, I mean, they were, you know, like the Smiths would sell, you know, 100,000 copies of their album, I'm th- I think. I'm, I don't know, but they were, they were, the sales were quite big, weren't they, basically? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean... Uh, Go back to your conversation about Gary Glitzer. He he would go in straight to number one with sales of a hundred to two hundred thousand straight to number one. Yeah, in the normal chart back then, the normal chart it was a huge volume of sales. But people would sometimes buy records back then for fun, you know, because some of the records that managed to become hits were oh, unbelievably God. bad. But fun like Granddad by Arthur. Clive Dunn. You know. Clive, yes, I know. And Telly Savalas doing some yeah. spoken word number. Which... Yeah, if. And then there's, uh, what was the other? Uh, Mouldy Old Doe by Lieutenant Pigeon. Songs Ooh, like that got yes. you to number one. I know. It was, um, and Divorce, D-I-V. Oh, well. I like that song and we're going to buy it for 30p. Yes. <laughs> As if you need to sit here again. So, Lynn, but but you're, you have never slowed down or stopped, have you? The band, the the musical journey. Well, until, until circumstances became beyond my control in March. <laughs> oh, yes, I know, yes. Well, everyone's had to pause on that. So what what, what would you say to a, an 18-year-old self? If you could have said anything to yourself back then, as an example, what would it be? Because... I wouldn't. You wouldn't? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say anything to my... Because uh, I wouldn't, no. Because it's just a hypothetical. I don't do. I don't do hypotheticals. No, but I just okay. So, what wisdom have you built up over the decades in the creative arts that you think ah, there's there's a couple of things here that I've really learned, which I didn't know at the start of this, but I would I would remind myself, you know. Oh. Oh yeah, there's loads, there's loads of things you can make different, but then uh, yeah, I just wondered, you know, because some people said, oh, "I wish I'd." That means you're trying to make yourself uh, have a perfect life, and that, that, no, no one should try and have a perfect life because it's not going to happen. No, but sometimes people said, "I wished I'd just enjoyed it more," or "I wished I'd practiced more." I wished I'd, you know, looked. I didn't drink so much. I just wonder if there was anything that you thought, yeah, that that, or whether it was just like, well, that's just a learning curve, and there's no point. Yeah, I can't. I can't conjure up any. Uh, no. Yeah. And and uh, as you know, live your life as best you see fit and try and be good. Yeah, this is what we all try and do, isn't it? But look, I mean, what's been really interesting is that on something like Spotify, which is probably one of those things people love to hate if you're a musician, but you do get over eleven thousand listens a month. And you're thinking, God, that's over 40 years old now, some of those material, that, that, that material. I mean, that's not even your whole back catalogue, really, is it? I mean, do... we... is that mine you're saying? Yes. Jesus Christ, I've been robbed. 11,000. Yeah, you probably get about 10p for that. But 11,000. No, oh, total. Yeah, but monthly listeners, 11,000. Um, so, you know, obviously people are still out there listening and, and excited by it. Are you finding new people discovering you and thinking, hey, this is quite a groovy sound? Uh, whenever, well, I'm, you know, I'm never scared to tell but when people, because I, 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 I don't have a stage costume. I, I wear what I wear on stage, off stage. I, I, what I wear is what you see is what you get. Um, so there's no, there's no blurring of lines. That's it. Uh, but so therefore, when I'm in 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 the normal world, if you like, and people see my trousers and say, "Oh, what's that? It's energy," so then obviously, well, that's that's it. That's me. And then sometimes they say, "Oh, where's Kathy Kirk?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or they they might be. Some people have googled me in the pub 
back in the days when you go in the club and because it's on my jacket and on my bag and on my shoes. And they've uh, then they've come up to me and said, hey, he, he's his shoe. And they go, wow. So um, that's, that's, that. that's, that's, that's it. Bit of yes. It's conversations on that one. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. And what was it like? Because you did a, a docu-movie, didn't you? Or someone did at the road to Wakefield Pier. Did that, because um, everyone loves a kind of a bit of documentary and some people love even writing a book, I mean, to document their kind of the life in music. Well, all it was was a bit before the sound check and then the live show and then um, backstage in, in in the dressing room and stuff like that. But you know, that's a friend of ours who, uh, the guy who does my intro for my radio show, Spiz FM, on Resonance 104.4 FM in London and online at ResonanceFM.com. Yes. He, um, here's the advert. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he does, he, 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 he conjured up uh, an introduction for me uh, for my live shows, but I use it as my intro for my radio show. It's uh, uh, sadly the, the the great voiceover of uh, Johnny Deluxe. He did the voice. He's now longer 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 with us, so I, I I hear him every week. Yes, it's always hard, isn't it? I mean, did you manage to document your career in music and 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 also with you know all the shows that you've played and um, yeah, so that because people love to sort of. You know, to re- not just reminisce, but you know, just to sort of think. Actually, I've just archived everything I've ever done. Well, I wanted that. I wanted that. Well, I, I was walking with a journalist one night in in Soho uh, after going from one club to another or something, and there's you know certain things like people. I said that you should you this should be a, it should be in a film. You, you should, I said, well, I wanted to be. I wanted to be filmed twenty four seven, but. In order to watch it, you'd have to watch it twenty four seven, which is what Big Brother the TV series later became. Yes. Years and years later, um, that was that was something I would would have reveled in back then. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't have these marvelous devices in our hand. But I, the first thing I bought on the American tour when I got off when I got the first day walking around shopping, when you know you always have the odd day off, uh, I went and bought a camera because I didn't have a camera. The first thing I did, I spent nearly all my, um, you know, you get uh, money every day from your manager on tour. And, yes. uh, yeah. So I, I said, give us all my money. I'm going to buy a camera now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so have you, are you, you know, because I always think there's a sort of a period of time, about 25 years, where you start thinking, actually, you know, because we always take a lot of stuff for granted, don't we? I remember talking to the photographer Kevin Cummins, who just brought a book out this year on the Sex, Pist- Sex Pistols uh, Christmas Day Christmas Day show at Huddersfield, you know, obviously a bit of a strange one back in 1976. And he said, yes, well... Wasn't there um, Fireman's... Oh, I think you're, you're, think, I think you're right. And yeah. um, and he said, you know, the thing is, at the time, people aren't that interested. The same with all his work with Joy Division. But then decades later, people go, oh, my God, brilliant. This is amazing. You know, they're now worth lots of money and we want to put a book together. And and you're thinking, Christ, that's only 44 years ago. But but it does take a while before something takes that value. I just wondered, you know, with all your sort of archive, whether you've, you're sort of thinking, actually, this is kind of this needs to be documented. Well, I do have as many clippings and cuttings and tickets and designs cluttering my um, storage spaces. Yes, because there's, uh, a, there's a great poster, isn't there? The one with Susan the Banshee's Spiz, Spiz Oil and Nico for the, the price of £1.75p, which is like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Well, that's right. The, the, the tour was Susie with Nico as a special guest, and we were the third support, so we would open up the shows. But Nico was on her own with an organ, and she was a bit uh, merry on uh, <coughs> a bottle of uh, rum or whiskey a day. And yes. uh, she wasn't in the best places at the time. And so um, she was going down like a lead balloon to 17-year-olds who wanted to jump to, up and down to Hong Kong Garden. Yeah, they didn't want to hear a drone, did they, really? Withdrew her, they withdrew her from the tour and they then bumped us up to second on the tour. And they brought in a couple of other new bands that were hip and happening. And they were a gang of four. Cabaret Voltaire and the Human League. Wow. <laughs> they probably put the price up to £2 by then. Uh, no, they was, uh, no, the posters... Oh, yeah, had... you couldn't change the price, could you? It's probably one seventy five for that. It's better than the line-up at Glastonbury, really, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah, that's amazing. So, look, I know this year has become even weirder than normal. Um, what's... What is, you know, I know it's hard to think about the future, really, but what what have you hopefully got in store for the next year and beyond 
Well, we had uh, we had. Uh, uh, I've got, I've got. I'm under new management now. From since the, uh, uh, well, we started the relationship just before Christmas, and now we're we're definitely on board together. And we did a show in uh, February at the, uh, the to celebrate being the top of the indie charts um, for eight weeks in 1980, 40 years anniversary kind of show. And then um, we had a plan uh, every every summer. On the twin nearest to the solstice, because we know our, our our audience is not a Glastonbury audience, so um, we think well, what, when everyone else has disappeared off to Glastonbury, we'll have our own little fizz festival in in the summer at the Dublin Castle and at my summer party because my birthday's in the winter, and I thought well, I, I'd like to have I'd like to have a sun, hot sunny day for my birthday. Yeah. So it would have been the uh, either the eighth or ninth. Um, annual summer party uh, on the weekend of the tw- it was actually the 20th of uh, june it would have been on saturday and uh we've got these other shows booked for uh october in edinburgh and uh, november in uh belgium and germany and switzerland and they've all all just been shipped yes so that's this year up, up the swanee and i would be surprised if there is any kind of lingering uh high death death rates in this country, particularly, I can't see us playing before Christmas. In not much, if, if winter, if the winter months continue the, the virus, then we ain't going to be playing till April. Yeah, I know. We're all sort of slightly dreading it, aren't we? Yes. Who knows? We wait for the second wave. Let's hope it doesn't happen. But um, yeah. Well, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. I mean, I've got quite a bit here now. Um, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. For... You how, how long do you edit it down? To? Well, sometimes I sort of do a few things. I, I sometimes because between because sometimes people like the interview and they they sit down and funny enough, Alan McGee has become very keen keen on listening to these interviews and he loves them. So he lives around the corner now. He, he last few years he's been living near Tower Bridge. He's uh, he, he was a guest on my radio show just recently. Oh, good. Is he? Is that with Kate? Uh, yeah, they're still, but they don't live together, but they're still together. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I did an interview with her recently. Um, yeah. So he, he, yeah. So I often sort of do a couple of things. Often I do the interview because people quite like it and they sit there. And 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 so I seem to have got a, quite a following in America now. And then I sort of edit edit some of it down for the radio show as well. So what I'll do, I'll I can send you a link, and then you can always put it wherever. <laughs> You I'll, plaster it, I'll plaster it over my uh, community, yeah. Yeah, and people sit down and they go, oh, that's interesting. Because, you you know, because the other day I was doing Wild Willie Barrett and um, he, he's he's probably, he does a lot of artistic things, doesn't he, dear old Willie, with wood. He became a wood. So you probably have a uh, a kind of a diverse kind of artistic life as well, don't you? Well, as you're interviewing me, I'm actually, and you talk about my archive, I'm actually surrounded by it, trying to decide what to move away to the corner of the room because I won't need access to it. And then I've got the T-shirts for all the summer shows we're not doing. <laughs> I'm trying to move them around. I've actually, I think I've got a sale today via the internet, uh, either Facebook or Twitter. Some people get in touch with me. Um, at Spiz Energy on Twitter, and obviously it's not hard to find me. You found me, and um, and you get a message to me. And if you want to buy a T-shirt, you know it's not hard. Yes. and we do we do post to America if your if your listenership is. Oh, uh, they love it. I mean, yes, absolutely. I think I think the one thing is people are you know if they're lucky enough to have any money are um desperate for shopping really. Well, you know, yeah, I think that's what's happened because um um obviously. You, after a show, people are more inclined to buy a shirt or a signed CD and go away happy with something in their hand. But you can't do that at the moment. So I've had to do it all online. And for a while, I had a couple of weeks where I was selling. I was having to go to the post office twice in a week. <laughs> it's not an avalanche but it's, it's, it's been nice it's not amazon but you're getting there look just lastly then i mean with touring because i know a lot of people have mentioned god you know touring europe is essential especially germany and you did america what's your what was your kind of re- reception like in europe and then america oh it's very good i mean uh germany is yeah they look after they, they've got healthy live scene and they, they they look after the bands that they visit and we've had some fantastic experiences in augsburg and essen uh, particularly uh freak show in essen they looked after well we did such a good show 
we ran out of songs. Uh, the audience is what makes it. They've got a fabulous audience there. And um, we, we, we got to the end of the set. And so we actually did about three songs we hadn't rehearsed for six months and just said, and I, I at the boys, come on, boys, off we go. We know how it goes. So we played it. And then so we thought next time we go back and we got they booked us for their birthday party, the, the club, the club seventh birthday party. And they flew us over there, uh, paid for the flights, paid for the accommodation. The accommodation was a 10 minute walk. And it was uh, everyone had a bed, so it was none of this sharing business. And uh, it was essentially heated. It was fantastic. It was winter. It was a Christmas, January. It was in January. Their summer, their, their seventh birthday party. And uh, gave, they, they were so hungover from the night before. They didn't provide food. They just gave us uh, uh, ten ten euros each to go to the uh, nearby pizza, which was a good pizza. And uh, it was we we thought, well, right, we got them this time. We're going to play every song, uh, but we rehearsed them. And then we got to the end of it, and they still wouldn't let us off stage. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We, we did Soldier, Soldier, long version, improvised again. Yeah, with a prog, prog kind of. Seven-minute seven minute version. <laughs> yeah, with a little bit of a classical motif halfway through, just a, some bark piece, you know, like Rick Wakeman would. But Hang that's on, cool. five of us. Oh, well, never mind. But look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. This is really appreciated. And um, look, I hope this year goes well for you. And um, yes, you come back smiling next year for more. Well, you know, that's where I, I'm live, that's where I live on stage. That's where I come alive. Yes, well, I know. And um, it is tricky, isn't it, when you can't do that? that your job basically so well, yeah yeah well look best of luck and thanks again for your time and i'll keep in touch all right send me those links then. i will take care Bob's your uncle bye see you later bye-bye Bye. and that dear listener is the end of the interview with spears from spears energy and um, a lot of other bands as well on the variation. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at C86 Show. It's always nice. So, um, yes, keep it positive, obviously. Um, and also, all the shows have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Indeed, you can. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week. I'll be back.